BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations. Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Today, we're talking with Min Jin Lee. She's the author of two novels, Free Food for Millionaires and Pachinko, novels that are so powerful and good that even if she never publishes another line, she'll go down in history as one of the all-time greats. Fortunately, she is at work on a third book. Her writing process, which we'll talk about in a bit, is long and arduous, but that is her commitment to excellence. Min, it's great to be with you. Welcome. Oh, hey, Doug. It's so nice to be here. Today, we are drinking unsweetened green tea, which we uh, we both have. Ito N, is that how you say it? I think so, Ito N, yeah. Okay. And over ice? For me, it's morning, so I'm <laughs> going to go crazy and have it on ice. <laughs> well, cheers. It's great to see you. Cheers. That's it's good. It's very strong, by the way. You're going to be really alert. Oh, this, is, this has a lot of caffeine? Good. Oh, I, I it's got something, that. but it doesn't make your tummy hurt, so that's good. That's funny. <laughs> I went to college in the South where they had sweet tea which is almost like a crazy syrup. It's actually delicious, but I kind of like this unsweetened delicious. a little better. Yeah, as you get older, you're like, you know, maybe I should just cut down a little bit of sugar. Yeah. So <laughs> so you were born in Seoul, Korea, and you came to the U.S. when you were around seven. And I read this really interesting story about your uncle, I think named John, who sort of paved the way and sponsored your family to come over. Can you Can you tell us a bit about that story and how your family came to the U.S.? Yeah, so my uncle John came to the U.S. right after the Korean War, and he studied in Missouri, of all places, as a foreign student, and he wanted to be a journalist and a writer, and he majored in history. Later on, it didn't work out because it cost a lot of money to continue his education, so he ended up coming to New York, he went to the library, and he looked up classifieds to figure out what job can I get that makes enough money? So, and then he found a job for software programming. I kid you not, in the 60s. So he read a couple of books and he got hired by eventually IBM. Mm -hmm. I know. That's amazing. I <laughs> love the I love the self-starter, you know, I, I'm just going to solve this, probably go to the library and teach myself coding out of library books. That, that story, yeah. and it's also reflected in your books as well, I, I found speaks to characteristics, and I, I hate to make a broad generalization about any kind of group, but it, 
seems to there there are cultures that have characteristics that I think broadly hold up. And that story in your books, I feel like there are two that jumped out to me about the Korean culture. One is there's an enormous commitment to family and respect for elders. And the other is there's an incredible work ethic and a self-starting drive um, and just not folding in the face of adversity. <laughs> um, well, I do think my Uncle John is really fascinating in that way. So what you said does definitely apply to him. And it does apply to some people in in Korea, but I guess it's really any oppressed minority. If you think about how they make it, it's because of those characteristics. But I guess my footnote, and I think you and I would agree on this, is that anytime you're an oppressed minority or a colonized nation, we don't know about all the people who didn't make it. Mm-hmm. And so many people, you know, were imprisoned and tortured and died and also or did yucky things like collaborated with the enemy? So all those kinds of things are the history of any oppressed minority or oppressed people. And in the United States, I'm always like routinely shocked at how many people are, aren't are credited for their work ethic. Or when I see how hard it is, like how much they have to overcome because things are so difficult for them. Mm-hmm. But... And that troubles me because, you know, Asian Americans are often seen as people who work really hard. I'm like, yeah, but I know some lazy ones too. <laughs> yeah. Well, what what about the family aspects? I think this this comes across in your novels as well. Is there a, I don't know, a more adherence to the family unit in some way, or, or do you think that's also? No, no, no. I, no, I think what you're, no, what you said isn't wrong. It's not wrong. It's almost like I think if I wish the qualifications were talked about more. Just because this this focus on family and education and work ethic, it really has hurt so many people. And that's the only reason why I talk about it. Because if I said to you, oh, you know, Doug, from your background, um, you're always a good person. Always a good person. Like, let's say I gave you that positive stereotype. But then let's say somebody hurts you really terribly. And you think, I need to do something. And that's not going to be perceived as a kind act. It, it almost kind of like it, it hamstrings you, right? It, it hampers you your behavior. Yeah. So and that's the reason why I say um, when I have met, especially college students, I meet a lot of college students who are really, really unhappy. Mm-hmm. And not just at my college, but just like around the world. And they think, oh, I have to make my family happy. Mm-hmm. I have to make their wishes come true. And then it destroys their lives. And just because of the suicidality rate that I've been seeing coming out of South Korea, I routinely say maybe the focus on family is something that we need to think about, like rethink and revise Mm -hmm. because all these positive sounding things. Have a consequence. Yeah. There's there's sort of like a, there's a flip side to that. Yeah. Right. Right. Because like, let's say you have the right to be angry. Like if I said, oh, Doug is always a happy person. He's easygoing and he really means well. But then maybe you're having a bad day and you want to act out. I'm like, you know, Doug, go for it. (laughs) (laughs) Don't hurt yourself and others. But if you want to start screaming and punching pillows, go. You got to let the monster out of the cage every once in a while. (laughs) Kind of. So you, you know, taking after your uncle a bit, you also spent some time in the library. You were in the, the Queen's Library, refining your English, working hard, made it all the way to Yale undergrad, and then got your law degree at Georgetown. 
I did. And I, I'm so surprised by it. And I wasn't, when I think back to all the stuff that I've done, it, it really surprises me because, and I think this is where my OCD and my sort of like, I have all these learning issues and people don't know that, but I have all these learning issues and where I can kind of kind of become more tunnel. Mm-hmm. And now I'm aware it's like, oh, it's because I wasn't paying attention to X, Y, Z that I got to where I am. And now, and or I'm paying attention to X, Y, Z that other people aren't. But I, I don't, I, I can't say I'm a fast person. Like I'm not, I'm not terribly fast. Like, and I, and I say this only because my sisters are so fast that it's always been kind of embarrassing to grow up in my family. <laughs> well, that's interesting. That that journey it, it kind of leads to a unique approach. And so, from from law school, you did practice as a corporate attorney in New York from I think ninety three to to ninety five. And I read where you were talking about the workload was so extreme that in part you got out of it for that reason. And I know knowing your writing and knowing it a bit about how you write, you are no you you don't shy away from hard work. That's not the issue. I mean, you've you've tossed entire manuscripts to start over and, you know, really courageous and hardworking steps. But the hard work for you has to be toward a goal that you believe in. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure you feel the same way. I think, I think this OCD thing that I mentioned, it's actually a diagnosis that I have. (laughs) So I'm not just saying it as a metaphor. The good news about the OCD that I have is that it it allows me to really focus on the thing that I want. The bad news about the OCD is that I don't know when to quit mm-hmm. <laughs> with the idea that I have. And it's really hard because I know that you know this because you're a writer is that, you know how you and I want to create this beautiful shimmering thing. And then we look at what we do and we're like, oh, that's a dusty, ugly thing covered in fungus. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you feel this way, but I know that in certain of my drafts, I'm going like, oh, good golly, why do I not have enough talent to do this thing? And why do I also have the dazzling vision in front of me? I wish if I didn't have the dazzling vision, then I wouldn't even bother. And I guess that's how I can sort of explain why I do what I want to do. But when I was a lawyer, I didn't understand why I was working as hard as I was working. And I don't mean like I was stupid, but I didn't understand the pyramid structure of late stage capitalist (laughs) law firm behavior. I don't know why you would make somebody work in that way. And then the compensation made no sense to me. Like, so I was absolutely making a lot of money for a young person. No question. Because I think I made $83,000 when I was 24 years old as somebody who didn't know hardly any law beyond law school which mm-hmm. means like I knew nothing mm-hmm. like because, you know, you could say, well, Minda, what does the Constitution say? And I'm like, I could tell you, but how does that relate to my client's needs? Zero. <laughs> so, you know, in that sense, I kind of thought, why are people asking me to do this? And then I realized, oh, what they really want is somebody who has a capacity of recall to o- look over these things and then report to somebody who really does know a senior partner mm-hmm. what they need to know. And I was essentially a researcher. Like if I look back at my first two years as a lawyer, I was the researcher, no different than if I was researching a book. Yeah, putting in 80 hour plus weeks probably. 
Yeah, it was actually more because I was so good at making you look good. Like, if I was working for you, I would make you look really good. <laughs> it's one of my superpowers because <laughs> I'm completely happy to not say it was me. Like, yeah. like, I just would completely efface myself and go, well, Doug asked me to read, read 100 boxes of documents, and that's my job, so I will. And then I will write my little report, give it to you, give you all the talking points, and then vanish. So imagine, like, every partner wanted me on their deal. I bet. I bet. Right? And at this time, you... You love literature, of course, but I, I think I read that you hadn't really considered it that it was a viable career option for you until a little bit later on. Oh, no. Oh, my God. I mean, I wrote and published throughout high school and college, but it never occurred to me that people got paid to do it, mm -hmm. that I could make a living. I mean, and actually, I mean, you know, I mean, well, actually, maybe you don't know because you're successful, but... Um, I serve as a trustee for the Authors Guild and on PEN America, and I have seen the actual data on what average book writers make. And most book writers, if you took that income, they live below the poverty line. Mm -hmm. So my assessment as a young person saying like, oh, you can't live this way. I wasn't wrong, and my parents weren't certainly wrong. No one I knew was wrong about that aspect. Like you have to do something else, like you have to be a security guard or teach or you got to do something else. Right. But I no, I didn't think I, I could be a writer, yeah. a book writer, no. But then you, you did take the leap. I know you did a bunch of uh, courses on you know writer's workshops and things like that. But we've been dancing around your process a little bit. I think let's dive in on that because I, I know people are, are very interested to hear how you do it. And everyone's different, but your approach has just been so uh, robust and thorough. And I some of the stories of how much you've done there and how much you've said, I'm going to walk away from this and come at it from a different approach. I just love all that. So, so, so listeners know you're, you're sort of on a, on a publishing cadence of about every 10 years. You're like Donna Tart that way. And, uh, part of that is because you do so much research for some of your books. You've done hundreds of interviews. You've lived in the places that you write about. Can you, can you take us through that a little bit? Well, you know, I, I think I need to meet Donna Tart because I totally get her in the sense of the long silence. And everybody asks me, well, when's the book coming out? I'm like, well, I don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I kind of know, but I don't know. And and I'm very lucky because the first two books I wrote and it took me such a long time that everybody just given up on me. And I didn't have a contract and I didn't have an agent when I for. I so I never sold those books. I didn't have a usually you can sell on a partial, which means that you have a partial manuscript, or you could sell it on spec for usually for nonfiction, you have an outline. And I wasn't funded and I didn't have anyone saying, Oh yeah, you need to read her because she's good or she's got promise. Like I didn't have that. And in a way, there's an upside. I mean, despite the extraordinary social humiliation <laughs> that I had, <laughs> and which I kind of think is hilarious now, but and that was 20 years of just um, feeling like a loser. And whenever I meet people who aren't doing well, I'm like, yeah, we're in the same tribe. I get I get you. <laughs> that said, it gave me so much freedom to go about doing things the way I wanted to do it. Mm -hmm. And I think whenever you're a formal outsider like an or uh, if you have an informal learning process to do whatever you want to do, you're doing it because you want to do it, not because anyone asked you to do it. And like, you can't stop me from writing books. Does, does, that, not, does that make sense? 
in my bizarre, weird way of, like, for example, for my first book, I took a class at FIT because it was only $700. And I was like, I know nothing about fashion and millinery. I'm a like a weird dresser. <laughs> I grew up wearing hand-me-downs. What do I know about, you know, making hats? So I was like, oh, well, it's only $700 and I couldn't afford it from my budget at the time. So I took a class on millinery at FIT and perhaps that was not the best way to spend my time. But in a way it was because I, I so respect people who can work with their hands. Can you take us through the story about your decision to walk away from one of your completed manuscripts? Because we talked to a lot of writers here, and many will get to a point on a manuscript where they know it's not quite working. They're like, oh my gosh, maybe I need to go from third person to first person, or I need to change something around here. And they kind of force it along, and they push it uphill, and then they publish it. In your case, you said this is not working. And, and these are big manuscripts. I mean, your, your books are 600 pages, and you said, you know, this is not working. I'm going to start all over i just i love the the courage and the wherewithal to just make that decision how, how did that go well when you're walking away from something that doesn't work you know and i know when something's not working like you and i could watch a, a movie and go like oh that movie is good but it's not great mm-hmm. <laughs> you know you, we know that and we're thinking well maybe it serves a certain kind of purpose and that's fine And I think for me, because I am really obsessive about quality, about my quality, about the thing that I want to put my name on or what I want to share with the world, and also what I'm asking you to read. Like, I I tell this story, and people always look horrified when I say this, but, you know, you and, I mean, you maybe you have a better um, contract than I do. (laughs) When I sell a paperback, I make like a dollar and 12 cents. Right. So clearly, if I'm spending most of my adult life, I'm 54 now, I've written, I published two books. Clearly, it makes no sense to work like this for a dollar and 12 cents per copy. And you and I know, like, you can have a full bookstore reading, you can have 5,000 people in your audience and still sell, let's say, 100 copies mm-hmm. or 10 copies or one copy and certainly i've been in situations where i've sold no copies yes, yes. <laughs> and been then there. so but you do it because you're thinking well if i'm asking someone to read this book that i've spent my life on it better be good because i'm actually asking you for 20 hours mm-hmm. you know 15 to 20 hours and even if you skimmed it it's still let's say i don't know seven hours so hopefully not only do i share my passion about this book with you i hope that you're having a good time and then after you have a good time i hope you thought oh i'm a different person because i read this book because the books that i love that's how i felt like i would read a certain book and go like oh i did not know that yeah well i, I can tell you a quick story diesel. on that i so i had pachinko with me a couple months ago, I was on vacation with my wife. We went to a beach. It was just the two of us, and it was kind of away and remote. And all I did was wake up, have coffee, sit in the shade on the beach, and read Pachinko. You know, with kids and work and things, I never get big chunks of hours uninterrupted for a book. And I read Pachinko for six, seven hours straight, two days in a row, plus the plane. I, I finished it. This is how I want to spend all my vacations. I totally loved it. It was the best way to experience oh. your book. Well, thank you. I hope that your family's not upset with me. But <laughs> <laughs> um, my wife, she had another book next to me. We were doing the same thing. It was it was perfect. That's good. 
thank you for that time. It oh. means so much to me. It's almost like us hanging out, right? That's sort of the way I looked at when I when I read books. I think, oh, we hung out, although I don't know the writer. That's great. Yeah, it's it's. I've spent, as you say, fifteen twenty hours in your head experiencing mm-hmm. this this whole uh, this whole story. It was just fantastic. I loved it. Thank so you. a couple quick process questions as well. Do you write it mornings, nights? Doesn't matter. I write whenever I can. Mm-hmm. I write whenever I can. I try to, I turn off my phone. I put it away. Like I don't have my phone with me a lot of the times. People get really upset. Like, why didn't you reply to my text? I'm going, oh, my phone was in the, another room. Or uh, very often I'll misplace it. So that helps. And I put on freedom for my software. I don't know if you have that on your computer. No. Where I literally lock myself out of the internet. Oh, that's. I'll have to look into that. That would be helpful. And you're teaching now. So you're busy. You've got a number of things going on, that uh, and yeah, travel. And... I have a lot of jobs because what having a lot of jobs has done is it's actually given me a kind of um, kind of like a political as well as an emotional freedom mm-hmm. to do what I want to do. So, and that's really important to me. So I don't like if I don't support something, I don't support something. I don't, I don't like I don't ever go around saying bad things about people. Like what's the energy in that but if i don't like something i don't like something and i'm not gonna do it so sometimes i have you know little paying jobs and sometimes i have big paying jobs but i have a lot of jobs <laughs> you know, it keeps you keeps you busy all right here's a couple uh couple odd questions but do you write by hand or do you type it in i type and then i will hand edit mm-hmm. and as you know i throw a lot of stuff away so that happens a lot and how about uh, reading other fiction while, while you're in the process of writing your first draft. Do you read other stuff? Yes. Mm-hmm. I read all the time. I read all the time. I read a lot of nonfiction. I read a lot of theory. I also read a lot of criticism. Mm-hmm. And I read a lot of a scholarship. And I love it. I love it. Do you ever go back and read your own published stuff? Go back and read Free Food for Millionaires? No. Not really. I, I mean, I have to for readings, you know, as you know, mm-hmm. but I no, I don't really, and I think it's so strange. Like I find it embarrassing to talk about it, but you're supposed to do it. Mm-hmm. I don't. <laughs> so I don't. I, I haven't gone back to read my stuff either. That? I, I think like, I find read... too many cringe moments in there. Like, oh God, why did I not? How did that leak out to publication? I should have fixed that. Do you? Is that how you feel when you read it again? Because you're forced to. I almost never do it. Um, right. Yeah, I just feel like I kind of remember some scenes. I'm like, oh, I don't even want to read that. I know, I, I know, I could have done better. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I don't No, I, I can't say I feel that way. I don't feel like I'm embarrassed by it, but I definitely feel this kind of um, I want to do the next thing. And, and you know, it's really funny. I once heard Ishiguro give a talk. I don't know him, but I once heard Kazuo Ishiguro give a talk and he said, I found my field. And now I realize that that's all I write about. So whenever I read my prior work, whether it's in essays or books, I think, oh, you found your field like that's your field and it doesn't necessarily mean the same subject matter but certain themes i keep really turning to that's interesting like, you I, say that so anna quinlan was on the show a few weeks back and this this is there's layers of where this comes from i guess her son was taking a class with amy bloom probably all, all names you know of course and amy bloom was saying that every writer writes about one thing and her thing was love. So it's a general sort of thematic thematic area, I guess. And Anna Quinlan was, I think her son then said to her, Mom, your thing is also love. And she was thinking, well, maybe I have two things. I think it's love and motherhood, something like that. So, But I, I get what you mean. I think maybe that's on the same track. 
Isn't that interesting? Like, what do you think your thing is, Doug? Oh, my gosh. I don't know. I'm all over the place. I feel like I uh, maybe I'm still searching for my thing. But one of my favorite writers is Michael Crichton. And I'm just talking about this with, with another writer recently. And one of the things I loved about him was his diversity in topics that he went after and, and how he was so in the zeitgeist. He wrote about were office place harassment years before that was a thing with his book Disclosure. He wrote about, um, you know, even Jurassic Park was really about chaos theory when that was kind of zeitgeisty. He wrote about uh, Rising Sun was as the Japanese... Uh, you know, economy seemed to be taking over and buying all the real estate. He was writing, writing about that. He's so, and then he wrote for TV with ER and stuff. So I just loved how he tackled so many different things. And I'm trying to do that. I aspire to that. So I guess then that theme would be relevance. Like mm, when I think yeah, about that's a good point. Like, like or futurism. So one of the things I'm really interested in is futurism. And whenever I meet people who are experts on, let's say um the middle east you know and i'll say oh what do you think is going to happen and then you know they give me their opinion i'm like oh i didn't think about that <laughs> you know and so that for me i'm really really interested in like what's relevant today and also people often think i'm writing about the past but i'm actually writing about the future mm. it, that it just but these are the themes that seem to to last so anyway that's interesting i want to ask cuz you know you are writing about things that are real. I want to get your thoughts generally on the power of fiction to do that, like fiction versus nonfiction, because I always find it, I never quite understand when people come and say, I only read nonfiction because I want to learn while I'm reading. And I think that fiction, if the author is good, is a much more powerful and lasting way to learn something that's true. For example, I could read a a New York Times op-ed on the colonial period of Korea, and I'd come away with some good information. But if I experience the colonial period of Korea in fiction through characters that I come to love and care about and and to really know, and if the writer is writing with historical accuracy, as you do, then I come away with a much stronger sense of that period. Because I can forget information very easily, but I never forget how a person makes me feel or how fiction makes me feel. Well... As a fellow fiction writer, you and I understand the power of narrative in terms of learning, because you're literally talking about how do you educate yourself in, in a lasting way. And Aristotle would have said <laughs> that you learned through that narrative through catharsis, right? And if we didn't have a character having a change, a reversal, and then the catharsis, and then a recognition of himself in that narrative, then you don't have that change. I know that you and I can write nonfiction, but the nonfiction now, especially now, has become storytelling. Mm -hmm. We use fiction techniques now in nonfiction, and, and every editor of a mainstream house will say, well, who's the main character, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, and how does this person learn? So it, it hasn't changed that much. What I do find funny now, because I don't mind pushing back anymore when people tell me they don't read fiction, even when they're saying it in a nice way, they'll say, oh, I don't read fiction, but I read you. <laughs> <laughs> and I always go like, well, I think you should read fiction because the reality is that I have met some of the most important people on the planet now. Like it was one of the oddest things about my life. 
these very big deal people have reached out to me and I have hung out with them. And believe it or not, like a lot of middle managers will say stuff like, I don't read fiction, but the, but presidents and senators and like fortune 100 CEOs actually do read fiction. And I think it's because I once interviewed somebody about why he reads fiction and it was a male, <laughs> um, which I want to add because most people think only women read fiction and, and actually that's not true. He said that the reason why he thought he had really wasted his time at business school was because the class that he thought was least important was organizational behavior. And as he became a leader, the most important class he realized was organizational mm -hmm. behavior. Now, Doug, what do you and I specialize in? What are novels? They're organizational behavior and a study of human motivation. So I think if when I really want to understand power, I read fiction, especially good fiction, because like Balzac understood people mm -hmm. and he knew exactly what a person would do. So very often, like young people will come to me and show me a text and go like, what does he mean by this? And I'm going like, oh, well, in chapter 13, this is what he's going to do. Yeah. <laughs> and they go, really? And, I'm, and they're like, how do you know that? And I'm like, well, I read fiction your Aristotle quote that's that's perfect and it, it becomes a way to absorb it that stays with you it's indelible through fiction mm -hmm. it's so, such a more powerful way to to take it in and and, and remember it but so, so you mentioned you've been uh you've been kind of jet setting you have you have rubbed elbows with some important folks and I know you go back to South Korea quite a bit as well I was wondering there my my wife's nephew so I guess my I don't know my nephew now Ben was living. He's he's uh, an American guy, and he was moved to South Korea and was teaching English there. And he was trying to describe what it's like there in South Korea with North Korea. It's like is I'm like is North Korea sort of like a daily looming threat, or do you not think about it every day? He's like, no, we don't really think about it every day. You know, sort of going around our lives. We don't. We're not sort of watching the border all the time. It's not a thing. But can, can, what's going on there? I I know you've you've spent some time there recently. Yeah, so I was in Korea four times last year, which was the most I've ever been. But there's all these things happening, so I'm asked to go. And first, by the way, your nephew by marriage, he would be called a hagwon teacher, which is part of what I'm working on for my next book. Our hagwons are private tutoring academies. And in South Korea, starting at the age of four, on average, parents will send their four-year-old to study English because English is the lingua franca um, and it is so important to be considered as a global person, as a young person in South Korea. And that is part of the cultural mindset. Obviously, there are exceptions to this role. But if you think about it, like, I don't know what you were thinking when you're raising your four-year-old, but were you thinking, oh, they go need to go learn French or German or Japanese or Chinese? Probably not. No. Right. So, and to answer your question about what's going on, um, and now South Korea, an OECD country for many years, is experiencing great, great, great cultural impact. So that's the positive. And has extraordinary achievements, which are, again, positives. But they're also having very serious issues like elderly poverty, it has it is a number one country of all the OECD countries in terms of elderly poverty. And that's directly related to the book that I'm writing right now, which is about the fact that when you are a parent, you feel 
that it's extraordinarily important to impoverish yourself and your future to educate your child. Mm -hmm. That's not a thought that a lot of people around the world have, that you would literally spend every penny to make sure that your kids have an edge. Mm -hmm. And it hurts the kid, it hurts the parent, and then it causes this elderly poverty, which is a measurable statistic. The other thing that I've seen, which is very sad, is of all the OECD countries, Korea routinely is the number one in terms of suicidality rate. So it's amazing people talk- lose sight of. I mean, the goal is happiness and joy. The goal is not A's across the board or you need to become a master at the piano or the flute or something. Like it should be, you know, what's the the end goal is happiness, not making the NBA team or whatever the goal is out there. You know, people really lose sight of that so easily. It's amazing to me. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I guess for me, the end goal isn't happiness, although I do think it's a perfectly laudable goal. I don't know if it's achievable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess for me, the end goal, which is achievable, is to be a decent person mm-hmm. who's doing good in the world. I think that is achievable by most of us. And I think, but it's it, for me, it's a conscious state of mind where I think, well, I don't know if I could be happy, but I could be good. <laughs> <laughs> or I can lead my life with purpose. It's, and... it's a good point. I should I should parse happiness down to sort of like to be productive, to have achievement, to have good relationships in the world, to help right. others, to have connections. To have been honest. Yeah. To have kept my word. Like, I think those things are really hard to do on a day-to-day basis. And I think when I look at my students, very often they tell me, well, I'm not happy. And I'm like, well, what's going on? And they'll tell me. And I think, well... Maybe you're working too much, or maybe you're undercommitted. Maybe you're not doing enough. Mm-hmm. Or when's the last time you helped somebody? And they look at me like, what? <laughs> and I think, well, in high school, all of you guys are so focused on what is it? Um, service oriented behavior. It's like, well, did that did you do that for you or did you do that for college admissions? And they look at me like really convicted because I sound like such a jerk for saying that. But then I say, Well, but Sometimes doing something for the sake of doing good is deeply, deeply satisfying. Probably more for the person who does the good versus the person who received the good. And, you know, I do say these things. It probably makes me unpopular. So forgive me, audience. No, but it, it, it's exactly right. The whole college admissions thing has driven so much parenting behavior. That is why people are learning to play squash or chess when they're four, you know, because. You yeah. need to be excellent at at yeah. least one thing. You need to be great at everything, but excellent at at least one if you're going to get into these places and do all the community service. But as you say, the, the motivation behind it is the application, not helping someone. It's it's helping helping the application. Well, and if we write fiction, we have to look at the motivation for things. And I mean, deep examination of motivation. Very often, what we see is the human beings like we're not the most attractive people. Like you can be physically beautiful, but then at the very bottom, like you could have done something good for the wrong reason. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't do it because sometimes like people are pragmatic and you do it, but there's a consequence. There's always a cost, I think, for all these compromises that we make. And I I think about that a lot and probably too much, but. So you hinted that some of these themes are in the third book. Is there anything else you can share with us about book number three? Oh, well, it's called American Hogwine, and I'm working on it, and it's killing me. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> You know what I can't? I'm not going to write that many books. 
Now, have you shared any passages, chapters with anyone? Trusted readers, agents, editors yet? No, because I really don't work that way. Do you work that way? Do you share your I like to get a completed first draft before I show anything. Me too. Me too. Plus, I feel like if I talk about it too soon and then it, like, goes nowhere, then I'm – it's some – Two years later, I'll have some embarrassing moment at a cocktail party. And somebody, how's that book going? And I'll be like, what book? So I just, I don't <laughs> want to talk about it until I I know it's real. Yeah. I think I do talk about it because very often I find that people are really helpful. Someone Because I, I have so much research and I'll think, well, gee, Doug, you know, do you know somebody who taught English in Korea who is of this era? And you might be like, as a matter of fact, my... Mm-hmm. Nephew by marriage did do that. So then, for me, that the researching part has been really much easier with this book than it was with my first one. I would say, oh, I'm trying to understand how Harvard Business School graduates behave, and then it was very hard to get an interview. Mm-hmm. Then, well, anything you can share with us on timelines, or that's too unknowable at this point. I'll let you know though when it's out. Okay, good. We'll be we'll be watching. <laughs> So on to the lightning round for Min Jin Lee. Favorite oh book boy. as a kid? Oh, you know, when I was a kid, I used to read all these little books by Lois Lensky. And her books are still in publication. But the ones that I really liked were the ones where she would go around the country and write about people who worked and the kids who worked. So one of them is called Strawberry Girl, I think, by Lois Lensky. Okay. And I don't know these books. I'll have to find what for what age are these intended? Oh, she has picture books all the way up to I think middle school. Okay. And I read all of them and I bought them for my son when he was growing up and they're they're charming. They're charming. And she was really kind of a pathbreaking writer because she functioned almost as an anthropologist. So she would write about young white kids who worked as migrant workers in the South as well as in California. So I remember when I was a kid thinking, oh, I must be really rich because I don't have to wear dresses made out of flower sacks. Because I knew that there were kids in America who had those things. So I remember, and I and I wasn't rich, but <laughs> I thought because I had nice hand-me-downs from my cousin that I must be doing quite well. Yeah. It's funny to think, you know, I, I've I've come across this sort of fact in the past, but, you know, if you live in a very urban place, you can still know that there are forests full of fox and rabbits and bird. you know, through storybook, you know, through, enter, enter that world through a book. Well, I saw my first cow when I was 16, Doug. <laughs> but you knew they were out there. <laughs> I knew they had to exist because I drank milk, but right. no, I didn't know where they were. And I didn't know that they would be so large. Like right. you don't understand scale because you used to look at look at photographs or pictures, but then yeah, Good Night Moon cow, doesn't quite like, capture it. They're even bigger than no, that. No, I'm like, yeah, cow, you are grand and big. Yeah. <laughs> books you're reading now, book or books? Oh, well, I am. I guess I can announce it. I am editing. I'm the series editor for next year's Best American Short Stories. So I am reading and reading and reading a lot of really wonderful short stories. And oh, that's great. Which means I'm reading all those stories that were published in 2022. Okay, great. Well, I'm looking forward to that. So that'll, the book will be out later this calendar year. Yes. Okay. I think it's out maybe November or something like that. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Favorite few TV shows to recommend to the listeners? Oh, you know, 
for comedy, I love the series called Hacks. Have you seen it? No. Oh, it's really fun. And there's two seasons. I thought it was really terrific. And I hope that people will see it. I also have been doing some research. I've been watching a lot of K-dramas. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And in so many ways, K-dramas. K-drama. So these are uh, dramas, that one-hour dramas that come out, one-hour-plus dramas that come out of Korea. Okay. I looked over the list of the top 20, and I just like did a deep dive, and some of them are so amazing. Are, these, are a lot of these on Netflix, or where are you finding Because I have a friend whose mother is obsessed with Korean drama. Like, it's all she watches. Yes. I think there's also like a, a music boy band or something like that that was very out of Korea that was famous that she was also obsessed with. <laughs> but uh, and then like like Squid Games is is a is that would that be an example of one of these? Yeah. Uh, so Squid Games is absolutely a K drama and it is I think the number one most watched show in the world. Yeah, I did watch that. Hours. I, what did I, you think? It's kind of scary, huh? Uh, it, well, it is. I was actually I, my first exposure to it. I was sitting in a plane seat and I could kind of see the screen of the person next to me, and it was that scene where the giant doll dummy like turns around and starts blowing i was like what the hell is happening next to me <laughs> but you know a week later i was in and obsessed and binged the entire series yeah so and, and it's an incredible allegory about capitalism and socioeconomic inequality and i mm -hmm. think that that's where i was really impressed by it but so i wouldn't say squid games is my favorite k-drama but it it really embodies how much they've come in terms of storytelling, mm -hmm. and especially a long form, because sometimes like K-dramas could have 24 episodes of one hours, and then it, it stops. It's, and that could be one season, 24 episodes for oh, one hour, which is a lot now. For Well, that is a growing category. I'm hearing more and more about that. Last time a book made you cry, or at least want to cry. Oh, I was sobbing, like boo-hoo sobbing, when... I, I was writing an essay for the Times about my reading practices. And so I visited all of my childhood books and I read them again. And I read Betty Smith's A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, which is very often assigned to middle school and high school. And I had forgotten about this book. I was like, I, I know I like it. And why did I like it? And maybe it's because Francie Nolan is like a really good kid. And so I read it and I think... I didn't stop crying from beginning to end, and I was surprised by its ability to affect a middle-aged woman. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to go back. I, I know the title. I can't remember the book, but I remember the title. I'll, I'll go back and get that. You know, for Irish-American immigrant history, I think it really should get more credit. Last time a book made you laugh out loud. Well, last night I was reading the introduction that Anthony Doerr wrote for Best American because I was looking at like, what do these series editors write about? And his introduction was so funny that I was in bed laughing and my husband's looking at me like, what's the matter with you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so even, even in an introduction, cause I don't think of him as a funny writer, mm -hmm. but he was hilarious in his nonfiction. I wonder how you feel about this. Is your nonfiction voice very different from your fiction voice? Yes, and, and even my fiction voice from book to book can be different, too, I think. I think, at least I hope it, I try it for it to be, you know. Well, isn't that interesting about literary range? Like, I, I think that I think that's really interesting because you were talking about Crichton earlier, and I always think, what is it that you're looking at? 
And then also, how are you going to say the thing that you're looking at? Because when I teach writing, I always try to explain to my students, literary voice is a misnomer because you can't actually hear it, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So voice is something that's constructed out of syntax and diction and intention. So what you're hearing is not necessarily Douglas Brunt. You're actually hearing the thing that he created, this voice that he created. Yeah. And, but I think nonfiction voice is very different than fiction voice for people. Yes. My nonfiction is, is for sure different. It's much more... I don't know if I would say academic because what I'm what I'm working on is narrative nonfiction as well. To your point, like there's a character and there's sort of like a not exactly a villain, but there's this tension happening. And um, but it, the the book definitely has a different tone for sure than the than the fiction. Yeah. Least um, attended book event ever. Oh, well, that's easy. I went to Madison, Wisconsin, and I did an event, and there were two people there, and one of them was my husband's cousin. <laughs> Isn't it who I had never met before? Who I'd never met before, and I was mortified in front of her. Oh, but I funny. really am grateful that she came because it would have been worse if she hadn't. <laughs> no, that was half your audience. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's funny, you know. We were kind of hinting at this earlier, but everyone has one of those stories Did or multiple of those stories. Do you have one of those? Oh yeah, I I I do. I mean, I probably you know one of the embarrassing was is uh, I did a when one of my books was out. I did it in conversation with Amor Tolls, and it was in Brooklyn. Oh, I love was, Amor. He's great. He's great. A really great guy. And so they put a flyer out in this Brooklyn bookstore. It was kind of a rainy night, and it said, you know, Doug Brunt for his new book in conversation with Amor Tolls. And we get there that night, and like maybe a dozen people showed up or so. 100% of them were there for Amor. You know, they basically walked by the bookstore that day and said, oh, my gosh, Amor Tolls is going to be here tonight in conversation with some guy I've never heard of. So maybe I'll come. But, you know, some of them bought books and so it worked out in the end. Well, people are gracious, but it is interesting about when you when you do these in conversation things for book tour and you have the more famous writer with you. Because it is tricky. I remember going to a book talk at the library and. Uh, it was Joyce Carol Oates, I think. And um, golly, his name escapes me. He's a, he also writes about alcohol. Jay Mac McInerney. Oh, McInerney. Yeah, he's, he's got that wine column for somebody. Wall Street Journal maybe or something. Thank you. So I think it was Jay McInerney and a, maybe Joyce Carol Oates. Mm -hmm. And it was really tricky because they're both really famous in different fields. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I thought that McInerney was really gracious because when it was time for the sign, he just kind of like disappeared. And it was kind of like, it's all about Joyce Carol Left her there to sign the books. That's funny. I, it's funny. I did an event with him once outside of the, uh, you know, they do that outdoor speaker series by the public library in, on 42nd, like behind it, whatever that park is. Anyway. I did that. Yes, I've done yeah, that. Do, yes. Yeah. So we, <laughs> it was during the day and people would show up for like five or 10 minutes as they ate their sandwich and then went back to the office. It was sort of this weird transient audience we had. You know, an agent once said to me that you can get writers to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And they're, been, they're like, you can get them to put on a chicken suit. And I remember thinking like, yeah, I think that she wasn't entirely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. We'll, we'll you do, do those takes. things and you're feeling so foolish. Like, because <laughs> you have all these dignified people who write books and then you're doing all these things and people treat you as if you're entirely irrelevant. And you think, maybe I am. That's <laughs> yeah, true. I mean, most writers would never have an Instagram account if they're publishers weren't like get the instagram account up there we need it oh i did social media primarily because going to these bookstore events and 
were so embarrassing. And I kept on thinking, oh, I'm wasting my publisher's money. And it must have cost them $400 to fly me here. Mm-hmm. And I haven't sold one copy. This is so terrible. And I got on social media. I got my son's friends to help me figure out this thing called Instagram <laughs> right. and Twitter. So yep. now, now you're reaching thousands and thousands. It really, I guess it is effective. I hear Instagram in particular is the the best one. but For bookstores and literary festivals, I think Instagram makes more sense because the organizers are on that. Mm-hmm. And on Twitter, I'm on it primarily because journalists are on it. And so if I need to contact journalists or if they need to contact me, it's really always through Twitter. So they're very, very different. As for Facebook, I haven't looked at my Facebook pages in I don't know how long. I'm sure like weeds are growing on it. So (laughs) There's only so much you can do. You're busy. (laughs) Also, I mean, what do you think about social media? I'm just curious. I, you know, it's for me, it's I it could be so great. You know, when it's. set out in the beginning I thought this is a great way to connect with people and I think some people do use it generally to make connections and it can be a force for good but it so easily slides into the toxic place especially on Twitter it's just a place for people to shout and yell and go to the dark place too often yeah sometimes people can be so mean yeah Yeah. I'm always like you don't have to be that mean (laughs) right (laughs) (laughs) I don't know but then again like yesterday what is it Harvey Weinstein and somebody else, like he's a rapper. Like they both got prison sentences for doing very, very bad things. And I thought, well, I guess like I don't think cancel culture is really I mean, I know this is very controversial, but people get really upset about cancel culture and but then there are people who did really bad things. Mm -hmm. So then what do we do as a society about the public square and the, and the, and the, and the actually a bad thing. And I thought in a way to have a courtroom say this was bad was helpful rather than. Well, that's right. There's a clear line when you've sort of broken the law. I think otherwise, you know, you don't need to come for the scalp. You can just tune out. I'm not going to buy that album or I'm not going to tune into that show or whatever, you know, and you just, right. And then it's just the laws of natural consequences. Like, all right, well, no one's, Clearly, no one wants to have anything to do with that guy. But I don't think we need to come out with pitchforks most of the time to achieve that. Yeah, and also sometimes people have children, you know. So I feel like, well, if you're going to go after this person, that person also has kids. And then I've also heard people say that as long as that person has a job, then you can just, like, do whatever you want. And I think, oh, wow. I guess it really depends on people's level of, like, are they suffering enough? So are you the judge and the executioner and the jury and the prosecutor? Like all those things. And as somebody who went to law school, I always like think, well, where do I want due process <laughs> and how do I want it? So anyway, I think about that a lot, especially lately, because people could be very cruel. You know, with the advent of social media, this online sort of mob, if you will, is it's a new thing we're wrestling with, the ethics of all that. You know, it was, it was impossible yeah. for millions of people to have a voice in some person's life, you know, 20 years ago. But now a a few million people can come for you if you make a news headline. Yeah. And, and at the same time, I often wonder why are those people so upset? And it must be because they feel very unheard in other ways. So I keep thinking about this whole idea of platform because I have a limited qualified 
and qualitatively decent platform. And I think, okay, well, what do I do with that? And at the same time, I kind of think, will the mob come for me? I don't know. But then like, if you take the word mob, it sounds so denigrating, right? So am I part of the mob? And who are the individuals who are part of it? Because we mm -hmm. can argue that we have demagogues on every side. Mm -hmm. And also, I also don't believe in both sidism because if you look at the actual power structure, some people have so much power and other people have so little power that there's no other way to do anything except to be collective so are unions mobs you know it's funny as i've gotten older the more and as capitalism has become so much more uh hurtful especially with, like health insurance and wages that are so depressed i think gosh i think unions are probably a good idea like i'm in i'm in a union i'm in the um the writers guild mm -hmm. of america for screenwriting and i gotta tell you i have amazing health insurance amazing like the best i've ever had in my entire life so in that sense i think thank you union right right but then it used to be that if you were like andrew carnegie not an entirely evil fellow <laughs> you were thinking i hate unions and i think i don't know so it depends it, it, as you say it depends i think there are some unions that are performing a valuable service and then you hear sort of the crazy stories of for example on broadway like no one can touch that broom except for that guy and people working backstage are making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. And if you want to put on a Broadway production, you've got to deal with 20 different unions and the whole thing is so dysfunctional. And mm -hmm. it's just like Absolutely. archaic the way it all sort of is cobbled together now. And you, I don't know how we get out from underneath it, but. And also I have friends who've worked in unions who've told me about the corruption in them. Mm -hmm. So, but I think it's, it's always like the baby in the bathwater because like some of it's really great and some of it really isn't, but I think collective action which is, again, another term for mob. Mm -hmm. It really depends on what's being discussed. I am surprised by um, just a level of impunity that people have now with doing terrible things. So I think this is the reason why we have this outrage. And of course, with social media, now we know more about it. Yeah. Well, if you come back on the show for your third book, we're going to solve all of this. I think we, we sort oh. of teed it up nicely for the listeners, and then you know, at some date to be determined in the future, we'll <laughs> we'll we'll put it all to bed. Well, I thought we've already fixed everything now, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that tees up my final question for you. One good piece of advice for the listeners. Oh, this is the one that I always give, and I'll probably say it until the day I die, which is to choose the important over the urgent choose the important over the urgent. And by that, I mean, sometimes some things feel really urgent to you and therefore you address that right away, but then very often you lose sight of what's really important. And I think, especially in this era of, um, we're li living in an era of attention economy, mm -hmm. right? So people are constantly trying to tell you this is urgent, this is urgent. And actually it's not very often it's not even that important <laughs> so if you remember it's like oh that's right my family's important my ethics are important um my health is important then all of a sudden everything becomes much more clear i like that that's great that reminds me of just sort of the importance of the dinner table for example you don't need to answer that urgent text or email that's not how to focus your time focus on being at the dinner table with your family that's what's important 
And keeping your word, like that's, and remembering who's important, who who really, who you really love and who really loves you. What's a real friend? And that's being forgotten these days because everybody's trying to kind of come at you and, and telling the truth. Like, I think those things, they sound terribly antiquated, but when I look at back at my life and say, oh, who really stood with me? Who really cares about me? Who, who do I really love? And if they weren't there, who do I really miss? Mm. And after a while, you, you go like, oh, that person's really important. That issue is really important. That value is really important. So, but all these urgent things, it's, they're like flashing lights and we're just kind of, uh, we're, well, we're like children, right? We're like, ah, oh, it's sparkly, shiny, mm-hmm. sugary. Yes. <laughs> oh, I love it. That's a beautiful piece of advice. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you for hanging out with me, Doug. That, my pleasure, man. Thank you so much. Great to see you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.